Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Information science agrees with scripture that knowledge is not enough. It has to be converted to wisdom to have real and lasting value. Director of Redemptive Unity Jimmy Kim brings us this sermon entitled God's Wisdom, which covers James chapter 3 verses 13 to 18. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Perimeter, for the opportunity to to come and speak. Um, I think what would be helpful for you to get to know me just a little bit, um, just give a little bit of a a short short bio, and I'm not going to spend too much time on this. This is uh, less important than the word that we're going to get into, but I always feel that it's helpful to, to know a little bit more about the person who's bringing the word. And so Jimmy Kim, um, born and raised in the United States. My parents immigrated to the U.S. uh, in 1971. We settled in the Washington, D.C. area on the Maryland side uh, of of town. And um, I remember when I first moved to Atlanta in 99, it was like I could drive around the city and I don't have to go into a different state. That's different. Uh, And my wife, when we went up to D.C. for the first time, I was like, check this out. We're going to be on the highway and like in two minutes, we're going to be in Virginia. And her mind was like blown. I was like, whoa. <laughs> uh, that's how geography works. Um, um, D.C. area, my parents, uh, they had a number of small businesses. Um, uh, while I was growing up, they had a restaurant. They had a dry cleaners as well. That's like two of the three main things that Korean tend to do when they come to the States. Um, so, you know, I had a, I had a full upbringing um, and it was really fun to, to watch and experience. Certainly there were a lot of trying and hard times uh, trying to operate a small business in the midst of uh, recession and economic downturn as well. I know a lot of us in this room also have experienced that. I moved to Atlanta, like I said, in 1999 and came here uh, in part to finish college and to go to seminary, but then also to help out my youth pastor who had moved down to Atlanta to plant a church. And strangely enough, providentially enough rather, that church plant was a part of PMI, which was a church planting arm of perimeters at the time. I had no idea what perimeter was, where it was until uh, much later on. And um, my wife and I, we met at this church plant, married in 2005, started coming to Perimeter in 2009. We live in Peachtree Corners, and so it's always fun to to be around the the city, around the neighborhood, and run into different Perimeter people. I know many of you live in Peachtree Corners. I have two little kids, 10 and 6, and they keep us on our toes. So that's just a little bit about me. Now, to the important parts, the word of the Lord comes from James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18. And if you have your Bibles, you can follow along there, or you can uh, just read it on the screens. The word of the Lord says this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, It's unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown by peace by those who make peace. 
This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty Father, would you indeed, by your spirit, illumine these words, that as Jeff prayed, that our eyes would be opened, and our ears opened, our hearts opened and softened to receive, and our hands and our feet readied to put into motion what it is, what we hear, what we learn, and what we may be convicted by, by your spirit today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the other day, my kids had um, convinced me. They had asked a lot um, the days leading up to it. Dad, can we please play Monopoly? We want to play Monopoly. And some of you are already groaning. That means you are a parent of young children who have asked you to play Monopoly. There are only two reasons to play Monopoly, right? The first reason is this. You want to spend time together as a family and you do not recognize how sinister of a game Monopoly is. The second reason is this. You know how sinister of a game it is and you want to play with your family. <laughs> My kids, they fit squarely in the first category, completely oblivious to, to Monopoly strategy, oblivious to the effects that this game may have on a peaceable dinner. I fit squarely in the second category. I like to egg my kids on, thinking that they might win, and I milk it for every worth, right? My kids will look at each other, I think today's the day. Dad's going to go bankrupt. <laughs> what a conversation, first of all, right? We're rooting for Dad to go bankrupt. We're going to win. We're going to win. And then what do I do? Crush them, right? Sinister. See what I'm talking about? It's sinister. Monopoly really is a simple game when you think about it. You roll the dice, you move some spaces, you spend some money, you make some money, you watch your family relationships crumble right before your very eyes. It's a lot of fun. Not like games like today, right? You, hey, I'm going to roll this 12-sided die. You know, who, who needs six? We've got 12. We've doubled it. Uh, oh, and we're going to trade some sheep for some wheat. Let's do that, right? I've already lost half of you in this room. <laughs> we're going to establish civilizations. We're going to build up cities. We're going to build roads. We're going to make armies. And at the end of it all, I'm going to say huzzah, because that's what you say at the end of playing Settlers of Catan. Monopoly is a simple game. And I'm not here to talk about Monopoly. I'm here to talk about the relationships that kind of are formed and the experiences that are formed out of playing Monopoly. I invoke my parental right to my children whenever we play any board game, but especially Monopoly. Because guess what? My kids don't keep their bills in order. You got ones mixed in with 20s and 100s and 500s. And it's all over the place. Their property cards are all over the place as well. They land on a spot and they're like, I want to buy it. Son, are you sure you want to buy Marvin Gardens? It will leave you with $6. We've been playing for 10 minutes. Yes, I want to do it, Dad. Okay, not going to stop you, right? Everything's scattered all over the place, right? All right, by the end of the game, it's usually Dad's managing everything, all the money, all the property. I keep it tracked in my head, all right, because I don't want to be playing Monopoly for four hours. No one does, right? If there's such a thing as competitive Monopoly playing, even those people, they don't want to play for that long. My parents, they would teach me all sorts of lessons growing up, not so much about monopolies, but just about life. And again, that's, that's what parents do. 
right? And sometimes those lessons come very, uh, very innocuously, right? As little things. And sometimes they're very serious things. And I always knew it was serious whenever my parents came to me because they would say, yeah, listen, right? Yeah is like the uh, Korean way of like, I'm going to get my child's attention. Yeah, right? And it usually was accompanied with one of these, like, yeah, <laughs> okay? I better pay attention. Mom looks very serious. My dad's forehead, the vein is bulging more prominently than usual. I better listen. And they're, they're talking and the internal dialogue the whole time is, I got to listen because I don't want to get in trouble. Listen, Jimmy, pay attention. Pay attention, Jimmy. Don't, don't lose track of what they're saying. Usually it's happening in Korean, which by the way, my Korean is not fantastic. Right? Does not bode well for me. Next thing I know, they're done talking and they're like, you heard me, right? I'm like, yeah, I heard. I don't know if I understood because I was so worried about getting in trouble next time. Right? And sure enough, I'm in my 20s and my 30s and there's something that comes up and it's like, I have a faint recollection. Mom or dad said something about this. I remember dad telling me about how to... to um, I was going to say carjack a car. That doesn't make any sense, right? That's not the kind of parents I had to, to jumpstart a car. <laughs> he said something about jumpstarting a car. You don't put this cable here. You put it here. And it's like, otherwise you'll blow up the car. And that, I know that that was like, come on, dad, really? Blow up a car, start a fire. Yeah, right. Right. But of course, here I am as an adult, like freaking hell. Like, I don't want to do this wrong. I don't have a lot of money and I've got the one car, I better not ruin this chance, right? Our parents, they pass on wisdom and I look to do the same thing. We do that with one another, don't we? And we see in God's word, in a sense, God our Father saying, child, children, listen to me. Listen to my wisdom. Listen to my wisdom. So in our passage, we're going to look at three lessons about wisdom. By no means is this an exhaustive list. Okay, we could look and mine through the entirety of Scripture and find much more than just three simple lessons. But in our particular passage today, here they are. So the first lesson is this. Wisdom is not limited to intellectual knowledge. Wisdom is not limited to intellectual knowledge. Notice what James says in verse 13. He starts with the question, right? He says, who is wise and understanding among you? And his response, by his good conduct, let him show. By his good conduct. Wisdom, I would say, is the practical application of this intellect. If you know something, go and do it. In fact, James talks about this, right? In James chapter 1. Don't, uh, uh, it, rather, it says, be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Apply into action this knowledge. I liken it to this. I like to cook because I like to eat. And I grew up in restaurants. And so very familiar with, you know, an inventory of, you know, what ingredients you have. Right? Uh, you can look in the pantry, maybe you can see a can of beans, you see a carton of chicken stock, look in the fridge. Oh, yeah, we had some rotisserie chicken the other night. We've got some cold leftovers. Oh, you know, try to stay healthy at home. So we've got carrot sticks and celery sticks. Um, I guess I could just take that knowledge of my inventory 
and regurgitate it back onto a plate. Now, I know, regurgitate, poor choice of words, but it's not a one-to-one. Knowledge would be a one-to-one correlation, right? Pantry, fridge, plate, dinner, go. Me, on the other hand, I want to apply some wisdom into that knowledge of inventory. I want to take it and say, what can I make with this? Right? I can make a soup. I can add some noodles, chicken noodle soup. Done. Very easy. Add some rice, chicken and rice soup. Very easy. Very good. Right? Um, add some more ingredients. If you have more things laying around, if you get creative, you can make a chicken pot pie. Right? In our house, the, the ongoing joke is if you have enough ingredients, put it all into one pan, put some soy sauce and some sesame oil in it, boom, stir fry. Right? Korean food, very easy. Wisdom is the, is the application of that knowledge into our lives. James is not limiting smarts. He's not limiting wisdom to just smarts. He's saying, what are you going to do with those smarts? What are you going to do with that intellect? In fact, Paul talks about this in, in 1 Corinthians 8, 1. He warns that knowledge can puff up. He warns that knowledge can inflate us, make our ego expand and expand uncomfortably, makes us arrogant. Instead, Paul and James here, they call us to Christ-like love, Christ-like wisdom. Look to the one who is wise. Look to the one who is wisdom personified, that is Jesus Christ. And what was Christ like? He was meek. He was gentle and lowly. What does it say in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Our staff has been reading a book called Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, And in it, Dane says this. The Greek word translated gentle or meek means meek. It means humble. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated like Jimmy when he plays Monopoly. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to Christ is not a pointed finger, but open arms. By the way, quick plug. If you are at all sensing a coldness or a distance in your relationship and your walk with Christ, I encourage you, pick up a copy of this book and use it as you read alongside the Gospels. In fact, there is a 14-day devotional that you could download on Spotify or find wherever you listen to your podcast. And each of these episodes are only five minutes long. What a great way to be pointed back to the person of Christ, to the wisdom that we find in Scripture. Gospel wisdom. Jesus is gospel wisdom. It's not just an intellectual knowledge, but our behavioral conduct in response, the putting into action of this knowledge. And let me be clear. By no means am I or anyone at this church preaching to you a works-based righteousness. You cannot, you will not please God by your works. That is not what I am saying. You will not be saved by your works. You will not be saved by your performance. In fact, we will be condemned for it. The whole point here that James has in this entire letter 
And I think the point of biblical wisdom throughout all of scripture is not work harder, try harder, be stronger, be faster. No, it's go to the Lord. Go to the cross and go to the person in whom wisdom is personified, Jesus Christ. Keep in mind that James's audience is a, a scattered church throughout the Mediterranean. And he's saying, your witness, your witness is so important. So don't just tell people what it is that you know. Don't just champion your values. Live it out. Because that's how people will know who I am. Don't just tell me or show me, or don't just tell me what it is that you know. Show it. If you believe in Christ and you say that he's full of love and truth and grace, then believe on him, love others, and be truthful. R.C. Sproul is a pastor and theologian and scholar. He passed away not too long ago. And his ministry, Ligonier, they continue to provide a, a resource called Table Talk, a devotional resource. Many of you are familiar with this. In one of those entries, uh, he, he, he describes knowledge and wisdom this way. Knowledge is equivalent to the intellectual content of the faith. And wisdom is the ability to see reality as God does, enabling people to apply knowledge in a life that pleases the creator and then creates godly abundance. Good words. The application of knowledge in a life. That's what, excuse me, that's what wisdom is. I'm going to ask you to put a bookmark on that word godly abundance because we'll get to that in the last of our three lessons. So first, Wisdom is not just intellectual knowledge. It's also our behavioral conduct together. Lesson number two is this. The opposite of wisdom is not stupidity, but self-centeredness. The opposite of wisdom isn't stupidity, but self-centeredness. Look at verses 14 through 16. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. James holds no punches here, does he? He says, be wise. Look to the one who is wise. Because if you're not, earthliness, worldliness, disorder, evil. He's saying, and as I think both a gentle but also a stern tone, be careful how you live, church. Be careful how you live. Later in James chapter 4, he says, submit to God, right? Flee from the devil. No wonder James's words are so strong here because he knows what's on the other side. And it's not pleasant. It is not good news. And it is, in fact, bad news. And did you catch what he said? Self-centeredness. Thinking of yourself first is how wisdom is contrasted. If wisdom is from above, self-centeredness is from below. Now, in our house, we watch a ton of YouTube. And that doesn't make sense because you can't measure time in weight. That, 
we watch a lot of YouTube and we don't have a premium account. So we we're stuck with ads and it's a game for us. Cause like the moment you see the counter going down five, four, you can skip this ad in three, two. And we're like ready, chomping at the bit. Let's skip. Nowadays, because uh, we have an election coming up, guess what kinds of ads we were getting? A whole lot of political ads. Now you're already fidgeting in your seat. Where's he going to go with this? What's he going to say? Right? And I'm sitting there with my kids, ready to watch Dude Perfect. You know, that's what they're really here for. And, and they say to me, Dad, hang on. We want to watch. And under the sweat is like starting to drip down my face. Like, you want to watch this political ad? Right? And they can tell just from the tone. They, they could not understand English, which they do. But they could just tell from the tone and the general vibe of the ad that this is a negative ad. This is not a positive ad. Or vice versa. They can tell from the tone of an ad, this is a positive ad. Right? And it's about the same candidate. And they'll ask me, so dad, which one is it? Is this candidate good or bad? Right? And then again, the sweat is just pouring down my face at this one. It's like, okay, I've, I've got a responsibility here. Right? So if I'm going to impart wisdom via Monopoly, I must be able to do it via YouTube ads as well. Son, daughter, that's a good question. Some people think the candidate's good. Some people think the candidate's bad. And then I ask, you know, typical dad fashion, what do you think? <laughs> I'm trying to buy myself some time here, right? Right? And then they tell me what they think. And I'm like, okay, well, I think, I think what's important here for us is this. We've got to understand values. What is important to this person and what is important to this other person? And how are they talking about what's important to them? And how are they talking about others based on what is important to them? Right? If we're not going to clearly define our values based on Scripture and what God wants us to do in our relationships, not only to Him, but also to other people, then what are we doing? And at this point, my kids are like, okay, Dad, can we skip the ad? We just want to watch Dude Perfect. And I'm whew, okay. Somehow we dodged that bullet for now. But I'm, it got me really thinking hard about how am I influencing my own children? And what am I going to say? Because guess what? What I say about this candidate, my children will say the same thing. What I say about my neighbor, whew, this is condemning for me. My kids will say the same thing. What I say about the other parents at the soccer field, my kids will say the same thing. The opposite of wisdom is not stupidity, but self-centeredness. James says, don't be filled with jealousy and selfish ambition. He says to be living in gospel wisdom is to be selfless, to be like Christ. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 10, 24. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. More so in Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, in meekness, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And notice Paul is nuanced here. He's not saying ignore your interests, ignore your values. No. Have values, have interests, yes, but not at the expense of your neighbor, not at the expense of others, because that will get in the way of the gospel. And how does Paul finish up that, sense, that section in Philippians 2? Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he took on the nature of a servant. 
John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus gives this new commandment. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Notice the marker here is not your love for others, but Jesus' love for you. I have loved you. Go and do likewise. Church, that's my command. Not me, Jimmy, to you, perimeter, but Jesus to us, the bride of Christ, the body. Not only love for ourselves, not only love for our tribes, not only love for our pods, but for all. Love as Christ himself loves, because wisdom is selfless. And thirdly, wisdom looks and smells a whole lot like the fruit of the Spirit. Look at this list in verses 17 through 18. And we're going to compare it to Galatians 5 in just a second. Wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Comparatively to Galatians 5, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. I used to grow up thinking, so long as I have some of those qualities, I've got the fruit of the Spirit. But Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is all of this. Practical wisdom for us, yes, is elementary. We just read it on the words. or We just read the words on the screen or in our Bibles. We've learned these lessons early on in life. But it takes years and experience to master. In fact, I would say there is no amount of time and no amount of experience that we would ever be able to, to master wisdom on our own. We cannot do it. It simply cannot be done. We must go to Jesus. All right, I already talked about political ads. Let me find another way to potentially divide the room. What to you is the quintessential fall scent? Maybe it's a pumpkin spice latte. Maybe it's cinnamon. Maybe it's the lingering smell of smoke in the air from a fire pit. For me, two words, Honeycrisp apples. Honeycrisp apples. That, now, I live close to a Trader Joe's, and I frequent Trader Joe's enough that the people inside, they know me, and they always ask, so where are the kids, Dad? <laughs> That's how much my kids are kind of like going around. They make a big fuss in the store. Uh, I say, I left them at home so I could have some peace and quiet as I go shopping. One of the things that gets me through the day and through a week and through a month is things that smell nice. And so Trader Joe's had this oil diffuser, a scent that's a honey crisp apple, and it is divine. It is heavenly. It is sweet, slightly spicy, not overpowering in any way. It's there and it makes you think, what is that? I want to smell more. It's pleasing. It's not, it's not offensive to the nostrils. It's, it's attractive. You ask, what is this? In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul likens the followers of Christ as the aroma of Christ. As Christians are influenced by the power of the Spirit, we're to produce fruit. And this fruit is what we read about in James 3 and Galatians 5. Now, that's fruit on the vine. 
still on the tree, ready to consume. And if you've been to an apple orchard recently, you know what an orchard smells like. My kids tell me this all the time. They're affronted by the smell of rotting apples because so many apples have fallen to the ground. Well, guess what? Jesus uses the same example, does he not, in John 15? He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Abide in me. Produce fruit. Abide in me. Stay connected to me. Because fruit that is off the vine and left on the ground too long will eventually rot. It will stink. And quickly a sweet aroma turns into a foul stench. I was having a conversation with someone recently and they mentioned how they had been negatively impacted by words that were said from someone who knew someone who knew someone on social media. And while it wasn't a direct attack, this person still felt incredibly devalued, dehumanized, humiliated, utterly humbled. And but this, by the way, is happening from the mouths or from the fingertips of believers. And as I was investigating and, and learning more about this situation and these circumstances, I learned it wasn't anything benign. This, this was a serious um, reason for alarm. My friend was devastated. And it caused him to question the legitimacy of his relationships. By the way, how ought we be going about addressing our conflicts with one another directly, right? Person to person. And I know that's hard in the midst of COVID. But we shouldn't be finding out and hearing down three or four layers down or three or four Kevin Bacons away from the source of our conflict. If you know that game, Kevin Bacon, six degrees of separation from. I just, some of you are like, what? What's he talking about? You can look it up later. How, how are we proclaiming Christ in all that we do and all that we say and all that we post and all that we tweet and all that we snap? What are we doing? Are we honoring God? Are we producing fruit like we see here in James 17 and 18? Remember what I said earlier about godly abundance? A word that stands prominently out of these two verses in 17 and 18, and also in Galatians 5, is the word peace. And if you've been around perimeter for some time, I think you know where I'm going. The Hebrew word and the Greek word for peace is shalom and irene. And the meaning of these words goes far beyond just the absence of conflict, which is how we typically understand the word peace. It's not just an absence of conflict. It's not just remedying things so that I feel better. It's about seeking completion. It's about seeking wholeness. If there is a hole in the wall, peace would be to fill in that wall and fill up the rest of that wall so that everyone within that wall has peace. Peace is making sure that our relationships, when they are broken, that we go to seek restoration. Because a restored relationship ought to lead to an abundant relationship. And so we can say that peace is about flourishing. Peace is about abundance. 
And we cannot, we cannot maintain this kind of peace or even strive for this peace apart from the person of Jesus Christ, apart from the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We can't do it. We simply cannot. I am naturally a person that avoids conflict. I'm a harmonizer by nature. I want to seek peace. And I know that unless I go to the gospel regularly and often, daily, moment by moment, I will veer off. One degree here will lead to many degrees down the road. Church, be careful. Be careful of pursuing our own wisdom and our own shalom. Seek Jesus. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. It is his peace that he promises in John 14. My peace I give to you. And it's a peace that this world does not know. Because guess what? Peace is a person. And his name is Jesus, the Prince of Peace. It's not a, oh boy, I feel great now that I know Jesus. It's not that kind of peace. Yes, we might feel that. It is a peace that says, I was lost, I was broken, I was crushed, I am perplexed, I am confounded, I am utterly hopeless. Gospel wisdom and gospel peace says, Jesus comes. I will find you. I will heal you. I understand you. I will, I will restore you. I come not with a pointed finger, but with open arms. Open arms, in fact, on a cross on which he bled and which he died for no reason of his own, but for our sin, for our sake. We cannot do this, church, under our own power. Apart from Christ, we will veer into selfishness, greed, into anger. We must go to Christ. Go to Christ because what is it that God's word says in 1 Corinthians 30 and 31? What is wisdom? Who is wisdom? Paul says, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Not you. Not yourself, not your tribe, not your platform, not your values, but in the Lord. Boast in him. Boast in him. Let your witness be known. This brother, this sister, this neighbor of mine boasts in the gospel. They exude gospel wisdom. Wisdom is not just intellectual knowledge. It is not, it is not self-centeredness. It is selflessness. And wisdom looks and smells like the fruit of the Spirit. The best of us in this room, brothers and sisters, can only muster a scant amount of wisdom. Our very best, most sincere efforts cannot come close. It will not come close to the full wisdom found in Christ. Jesus became wisdom to us from God. He is our righteousness. He is our salvation. He is our hope for sanctification and in whom we will be glorified. And so the challenge for us, church, is this. Pursue wisdom. Wisdom is not simply a thing to possess. It is a person to be worshipped. And it begins with a fear of the Lord. It's achieved through childlike faith, faith by the grace of God. Wisdom, his name is Jesus. Run to him. Go to him. Yes, by all means, be knowledgeable. 
Know your values and understand where those values ought to come from. And that's from God's word. We ought to take a cue from the hymn, take my life and let it be. I think it's in the third verse. It says, take my intellect and use it as thou shalt choose. So take that with the cross together and go. As people of the covenant, as people of the kingdom of God, we must be different from and attractive to the world. Let your values be rooted in the kingdom of God and in gospel wisdom. Let, uh, let our principles be guided by God himself. Be a people committed to excellence. Be a people whose chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Let us be known as people who are stewards of the things that God has given to us. He's entrusted them to your care. Steward it well. And never, ever lose sight of the fact that our life is not limited to the here and now. That life is not limited to what might happen in two weeks. Life goes on. November 4th will come. What will we say then? How will we be living gospel wisdom and gospel peace? It's in Jesus Christ alone. Let your speech, let your words, let your thoughts, let our tweeting, let our fingertips speak wisdom to the people around us. And this is a message for me. Believe me, I need to hear this and I need to be reminded of this daily. And I think you do too. So to church, together, let's be that witness to an unbelieving world. What I want to do as we close our time is this. I want us to quietly reflect where we are and take a moment to pray, asking God for wisdom. James 1.5 says this, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously without finding faults, it will be given to him. So can we do that now? Let's bow our heads and pray silently reflecting and requesting God give me wisdom gospel wisdom found in Jesus your son and as you do that the worship team will come back to the stage and they'll close us in a response song you've been listening to the perimeter church sermon podcast perimeter church is located at the corner of highway 141 and old alabama road in johns creek georgia Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.